If you're looking for an inspiring human being, it would be hard to beat Dr. Cyan Proctor. Dr. Proctor is a geoscientist and also an artist and poet who uses her Afrofuturist space art to encourage conversations about women of color in the space industry. For 21 years, she taught geology, sustainability, and planetary science. She also happens to be an astronaut and was the mission pilot for the Inspiration4 All Civilian Orbital Mission to Space. Her call sign, Leo, was earned from her crewmates, who consider her a modern-day Renaissance woman in the mold of Leonardo da Vinci. This special episode of the Design Better podcast was recorded at an internal event for Envision, where we brought Dr. Proctor in to speak to our team. After her inspiring presentation, I had the chance to interview her. We spoke about topics ranging from imposter syndrome, to learning to speak the language of your collaborators, to the natural synthesis between art and science. So let the countdown begin to a great episode with Dr. Cyan Proctor. Thanks as always for listening. Hey, everybody. I think most of you know me, but I'm the host of our Design Better podcast. First of all, I just want to say we're so fortunate to have you here, Dr. Proctor. I'm already hugely inspired. And I woke up this morning and I was really excited. And I went to my daughter and I said, guess what? I get to talk to an astronaut today. And she's 11 years old. And I said, what would you ask her? And she said, are there any aliens out there? Do you believe in aliens, Dr. Proctor? So I'll, I'll, that could be a quick lightning question, but but let's start yeah, with that. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because as a scientist, I'm a skeptic, but I was looking. You know, I want aliens to exist. As, you know, my favorite movie is Contact. So if you've seen Contact, but like, yes, I've seen Contact. One, they should send a poet to space, and they did. And two, you know, she says, if there weren't intelligent life out there, it'd be an awful waste of space. And so I was on the hunt. You can tell her I was looking for aliens. And there's a PBS show that I was in with. It's called Genius by Stephen Hawking. Episode two, Are We Alone? And I'm featured in that. And it's all about the search for extraterrestrial life. And so I think she would love it. It's on PBS. Fantastic. I'll share that with her. She'll be excited. I love that movie and, and the book too. It's great. So you also talk about Getting past imposter syndrome, I think a lot of us face imposter syndrome. I still face it a lot, even though I have gray hair and gray beard, I think it maybe never goes away. But talk to us a little bit, you know, in our roles, we get to speak to a lot of different people. Sometimes they're much more senior to us. How do you go about facing imposter syndrome or maybe even embracing it? Right. No, I suffer from imposter syndrome too. And, you know, the thing that I've been able to do is have a conversation with that voice inside my head because it's going to crop up. It's that base of fear that particularly unknown change, how will I perform, all of those kinds of things. But when you engage in a conversation with that voice and you really start to break down, well, where is it coming from? What am I afraid of? What is the worst that can happen? What is the true risk? You know, because a lot of it is all based on the unknown and how well we will be perceived among others or our ability to perform in high stress environments. And so once I start having that conversation with myself and of course, my dad's voice kind of comes in there and he, he was always like, sure, you can do it. Get on out there, <laughs> you know, but being able to say, OK, all right, what's the worst that can happen if it's a no from NASA? You know, what's the worst that can happen if I go to sea and I fall overboard? <laughs> well, wait a second. What are the chances that I will fall overboard? Because I had that conversation with myself when I became a NOAA teacher at sea. They wanted to send me to Kodiak, Alaska to do uh, fisheries. And I was like, one, I'm a geologist, fish, wait a second. In Kodiak, Alaska, isn't that where deadliest catch happens and they fall overboard? And so I had all of these fears and I said, whoa, whoa, none of this is realistic. 
Let's go and see what the experience actually is like. And so I went and I had the best time at sea. I had such a fantastic time that I signed up to go to the Joides Resolution for two months in the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. And so a lot of times that imposter syndrome talks you out of amazing things. You work with a lot of different teams that have a diverse set of skills and backgrounds. And we also, in the tools that we create, we want to create opportunities for people working in different parts of the organization to collaborate more effectively. How do you think about optimizing communication and collaboration across teams where these expertise and and professional language might be very different? Oh, you know, that's a good question because, first of all, there are two parts to that. I've done a lot of like thinking and kind of research in crew cohesion in thinking about things from a strengths, a positive psychology, like what are your strengths within a team and what do you bring forward and being open about that because then you can talk about your strengths and then at like a puzzle piece, put together the teams that make sense to move projects along, even to the point where I had my crew members take the strength finder tests just so that we could talk about our strengths and how we fit and where we might have gaps and where are the rest of our team members could fit in to fill some of those gaps. And so I think that that is really important. Then when it comes to language, figuring out a common language, I had to go from being a geoscientist to a systems engineer in order to become the pilot of the Dragon Capsule. I am not an engineer. So I had to learn to speak engineering. And it was really funny because at SpaceX, they're all engineers. So we're going through all of this stuff and they would be firing off all of these names and stuff. And I said, wait, 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 you know, I need a list of what these names mean. Because until we could speak the same language, it was really difficult for me to move forward. That's a conversation that you have to have within your teams. You have to come up with a common language so that everybody can be productive together. So I think Focusing on strengths as a good thing, being open about your talents and where you can fit in and what you love to do, because there's nothing worse than being assigned something that you hate doing within a team or a group, because you're just like, man, I don't want to do this. It's like answering email. Who the heck wants to answer email every day for hours? But if it's something that you're excited about, you said, Cyan, I want you to come in and draw. I want you to make a low. I'd be like, oh, oh, this is going to be fun. That's one of my strengths. I really enjoy that. And so I think that those are two ways that you can be more productive. You just touched on drawing and you talked to National Geographic about how the human part of us is the art, the music, dancing, expression, the culture that we bring along with us. I think a lot of us in our work roles, well, some of us, if we're a designer or a writer, we may get to use that creative part. But how do you think about being creative as a scientist or in the other work that you do? And do those opportunities for creativity make you a better collaborator? Yes. You know, I got my call sign Leo, not because it was born in August and I'm a Leo astrology, but because my crew members considered me to be a modern day Renaissance woman or a Leonardo da Vinci. And so that's where my call sign. So combining art and science. And what I've come to realize is that there's art in science and there's science in art. And so when we're thinking about ourselves as a scientist and we say, oh, well, I'm not very creative. You actually are very creative. There is creativity in everything that we do. And it's about recognizing that, you know, as a scientist and as a teacher, my job was to build curriculum and build lesson plans that students found interesting. There is an art 
to good curriculum development, just like there's an art to good coding. There's an art to cooking. There's art in everything, but there's also science in all of these things too. And so I think when we can break down those barriers and recognize that they're intimately entwined. What I love about the Dragon Capsule is that it has a lot of function, right? It takes you to space and it can keep people alive in it, but it also is got aesthetics. It's beautiful. Our spacesuits. Hello. Those are the things are so nice. I'm like, I'm keeping mine. Give it to me. And SpaceX is like, I don't think so. <laughs> but you know, this whole idea of having beauty and function or aesthetics and function and being able to design things and have the engineering work, but also recognize that people have to interact with this. They want to feel the fabric. They want to look good. They want to have an experience wrapped around all of the function. So I'm going to thread in a few questions from the audience here as, as they come in. I hope that's okay. Tim Newborn asks, as someone who's pushed beyond the barriers of your own belief limitations, what would you say is the single most important trait that led to your success in that journey? Single most trait? Ooh, that's a tough one. Because I will tell you that I feel very fortunate that positivity is my base. I have a glass half full mentality. And so that has helped me. I'm very futuristic, but also persistence as a Black female boy, geoscientist, <laughs> trailblazing, always having to be the explorer, the first in, and having to work 110, 120% harder for everything. It really is that you work harder to get recognized and people expect you to fail. It's unfortunate, but that's the way that it is. And it's been a battle my entire life of having grit, determination, persistence. And I remember, you know, becoming Dr. Proctor. I'm like, yeah, I did it. But that splashdown, when we splashed down into the Atlantic, I was like, becoming <laughs> Phoenix Rising. <laughs> Ain't taking this away, folks. <laughs> that moment of being able to celebrate all of that hard work and that persistence for that moment. That's fantastic. So this next question is maybe tied to that because it sounds like that was one of the kind of most pinnacle moments of your career. But if you've, you're looking back at what you've accomplished, what are you most proud of and, and why? And if you could give your 10-year-old self any advice, what would it be? That's hard to pin down because there are a lot of, you know, pivotal moments in my life. But the ones that stand out are definitely becoming Dr. Proctor because, boy, that was a struggle. <laughs> I mean, the year before I got my dissertation, I walked into my professors, two white male geologists. I had three on my committee, two white male geologists and a female that was cognitive psychology in a different building across campus. And I was like, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. Mainly because of a lot of the stuff that was addressed with the hashtag black and the ivory and, you know, and just kind of microaggression and racism and all those things. And of course, my two main guys who I had been working with for the one guy I'd been working with doing my master's. Bye. See ya. <laughs> the other guy, bye. See ya. Walked into the female's office and I'm like, oh my God, I am so done. Cause she was the third one in the line. And she looked at me and says, you are not done. You are my grad student now. Here's your office next to me. Cause now she had, could take over. She could have the power. And, and within a year I was done. But that was a very pivotal moment for me. I was becoming Dr. Proctor. And then, of course, 
you know, going to space and doing well there. But I think it's more than just that one moment. I think it's that from submitting that video and having the courage to put myself out there as an artist and poet and share that message to Splashdown was also a pivotal moment in my life. Oh, I forgot to say what I oh, would yeah, sure. say to yeah, my yeah, 10 sure. year old self. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. Be, okay. So I think the big thing is patience. And I think a lot of people, you know, I want it now. You know, you think of Willy Wonka and they, they like the golden goose. I want it now, daddy. <laughs> no, you got to have patience. It took me 51 years to get to space. But that journey, and I look at my life over from being 10 to, you know, turning 51. And wow, the experiences, the journey, it's so rich with interactions and connections and experiences that being patient and being persistent is what I would tell myself at 10 and enjoy the ride. Just questions from Magic Masters. And she asks, how do you see the path for more people of color, specifically women of color unfolding in space programs? Active allies. We need active allies. We need people who are at the table, people with privilege to create a Jedi space. They have to actively, when people say, well, I support people of color, I support everybody. You say, really? How? Give me some examples. How are you actively? Because you can say you're supportive. That's great. But if you're not opening up space, if you're not creating a Jedi space, then you're just on the sideline watching. And we need active allies. If we're going to make any progress, we need the people who are at the table, the people who have privilege to open up that space and make it a Jedi space. And when you're opening up that space, you're not taking away from others. Because a lot of times it's this whole competition thing of, well, we only have so many pieces of the pie to give out. No, pie, the number is infinite. We need to reframe from an actual pie to the number pie and think, well, open up access and opportunities is an endless pool. So this is probably inevitable, but we also want to ask some questions about just going to space. What was that like? And, and that moment when you opened the front portal and you could look down on Earth, you talked about it a little bit already, but how did that reframe how you think about you know, humanity here on this planet and what our future might look like? Oh, it makes me wish I could bottle earth light and then just shine it on everyone so that they can experience it. Because it really is, you know, we have this relationship with the moon that is interesting and to some extent mystical. And we think about how a full moon, why does it make us feel that way? Why does moonlight captivate us? And you just want us to be able to have that same kind of relationship with our planet because it is the most beautiful planet in our solar system and there's no better place than home. And so how we interact with each other and treat each other and how we just, could we share resources? Can we move away from this competitive kind of like historic model into this more complementary, we're all in this together on Starship Earth model and that it's one kind of living system. That's what I would hope we could strive for. But that's the kind of change that I've come back. I mean, I had some of that as a geoscientist, but going to space as an artist and a poet, it allows me to express these things in ways that I wasn't able to before. You shared with us, I think, a longer version of your talk, and you didn't get to talk through this in the, in the opening segment. But maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the actual challenges you faced uh, early on that impacted the direction that you took over the course of your career. 
Yeah. So, you know, as a kid, I loved military aircraft and couldn't explain why, but I wanted to be a pilot. I want to be specifically a fighter pilot from my earliest age. My dad used to take me to get model airplanes to buy. And I just thought that that would be so awesome to be able to be a fighter pilot and then turn into an astronaut and go to space. And then you couldn't back in the 80s be a fighter pilot if you wore glasses. And so I got glasses around the age of 15. And so I knew that I was never going to be a military aviator. So I thought, well, I will never be an astronaut because that just was the way that I saw my road to get to space. And then my dad, who had always been my biggest champion, passed away when I was 19. He had gotten uh, lung cancer. And so it was one of those things where I became a kind of an angry teenager and very defiant, but yet still on that course of science and going to school and getting educated. But it wasn't that Cinderella story by any means. Losing my dad, going to school, being the only Black female normally in all of my classes, not having any Black female science professors ever in my entire career, you know, and just always feeling like you're alone in these spaces and looking for people to connect with and having as allies. And even just, again, it wasn't until I was almost done my PhD that I found true mentorship for the first time where somebody said, no, <laughs> this is the way it should be. And you're like, oh, really? Okay. You just talked about the importance of mentorship. And for those of us who might be in a position to give some mentorship to somebody, what are some ways that you think we could go about doing that? Well, I think one of the things that, again, if you're thinking about that genetic space, because we feel we have a comfort zone, we tend to want to be around people who look the same as us, who value the things that we value and all of that. And I would say, think about stepping outside of that comfort zone. And so when you're thinking about mentoring somebody, try mentoring somebody who you normally wouldn't take. And so why would you not normally mentor this person or why would you choose this person over that person? Try choosing that person instead, because it'll help you grow as a mentor as you navigate that new space. Because a lot of times when we stay in that comfort zone, we don't grow. We don't learn as much. It's when we're out of our comfort zone that true growth really starts to happen because we're pushing ourselves to really take on things that we might be afraid of the unknown, all of those things. And then I'd also say that mentoring or mentorship, we try to sometimes have an age associated with that. But as you get older and seasoned with gray, I cover mine up. So <laughs> it's never too late to have a mentor. So I'm finding mentors now and I'm like, oh, you know, I need a mentor or even a sponsor for some of the things that I still want to do as a seasoned individual. So other than the mentorship, and this is a question from uh, Michaelia, did you use any specific techniques to overcome your perceived limitations, things like meditation or therapy or anything like that? You know, I love the idea of therapy and meditation. I've done a lot more of just reading self-help books that I've done, particularly in understanding strengths, understanding my own tendencies and things like that. But I want to be better at meditation. I've tried a bunch of apps. It's something that I still think about this morning. I was trying to meditate a little bit as I was taking on my day. And I think that these are things that, again, 
It's about habits and changing your habits. One of the books that I read was Power of Habit, because this is stuff that I'm trying to do and really trying to embrace this idea of how do I make my well-being a center core of who I am. And so I did embrace it some, but not as much as I would have liked to. I was still successful in stuff, but I definitely feel that that is something that is slowly being weaved or integrated into my fabric as I learn to change habits, bad habits that I've had for many, many years of ignoring my well-being. So we're getting a lot of requests for you being a mentor in the chat. I'm sure you already have a long line of people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I appreciate that, but boy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, right now, obviously, we're in a really, we've been in a challenging period for the last number of years. And right now, the international situation is very complex and scary. And I kind of think back to my own childhood, again, revealing my age here in the 80s. And that was the last time I remember nuclear war being something that was something that we're really, really worried about. You've got such a wonderful positive energy. How do you bring that positive energy to the front during times like this that are, that are so challenging? Well, you know, there's a couple of things. I remember that in the 80s. That was the thing that terrified me as a kid was that idea that a nuclear bomb was going to drop on us. And so when we get into these really stressful times, just like things that we cannot control, like, unfortunately, you know, we can voice our opinion and we can vote, but we feel powerless to some extent. It's going back, for me at least, to how do I get myself into either a neutral state or a positive state? Because you have ups and downs. You know, I'm a positive person overall, but, you know, there are definitely times when I'm just not feeling happy or just wanting to engage in all of that. And that's when I go back to the core of me. What are the things that make me happy? Music. So listening to the right music, you know, forcing yourself to put on music that just resonates with you because music has a way of changing mood. And then, <laughs> funny enough, romantic comedies, my favorite type of movie, you know, everybody's happy in the end. And so I will go to a romantic comedy and I will put that on and I will watch it when I'm not feeling that optimistic about the world, just because it will put me in a better headspace where then I can be like, okay. Now I baseline myself out, how do I move forward and be productive in this space? For other people, it might be going for a run, getting out in nature. You know those things that just help center line you, those things that help kind of lift you up when you're not feeling your best. That's the time when you reach into that toolkit and you pull those things out and you say, whoa, I need a mental health break, you know, and you just shut things out. You put those iPod in your ear and you just go and do your thing. And it's okay to say that because I think that that's the thing that we don't say, you know what? Okay. I just need to shut the door and I need a moment. You know, there were times when we had long days and I was tired and I was like, I just need a moment. <laughs> Give me 15 minutes. I'm, and I'm going in the other room and I'm just going to take a cat nap <laughs> because I need this moment for myself. And so figuring that out and then taking those moments, precious. Well, Dr. Cyan Proctor, want to be respectful of your time and just huge, huge thank you. Everybody could just give a little round of applause, some emojis. Hopefully everybody's just as inspired as I am. And it's just an honor to have you here. We thank you so, so much. Can I read you one poem from my new book, Space to Inspire? Absolutely. Of inspiration. Absolutely. Just to leave you Please. with a little something because I know you're going off and you're doing awesome things. And so let me think. I'm going to do black magic. I'm an Afrofuturist artist. And so thinking about how in the future we might be 
you know, augmented in order to be able to survive the harshness of space. But black magic, unleash your black magic like it's your last breath, unique to just you as the DNA of a supernova, filled with exploding strength like the pool of gravity, your whispered dreams manifest as precious as rays of gold. They blow away the light of darkness like a gravitational wave aching to stay, allowing you to gasp at the sublime as the beat of your soul expels the endless rainbow of time. So go out and unleash your black magic.